let's open to Luke chapter five. I want to pick it up in verse 16. And uh, we'll follow this section through verse 26. Verse 16. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judah, and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they sought to bring him and lay him before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, well, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. So when he saw their faith, he said to him, man, your sins are forgiven. Now, we had this on a Sunday morning several weeks back, and I'm, I'm always thinking when I read this verse here, these are obviously um, guys that were best friends with this, their friend who was paralyzed. The word is out. The Lord is healing. Right before this, the Lord had just cleansed a, la- a man of leprosy, um, verses 12 through 15. So they have one desire, and that is that their friend who was paralyzed would once again be able to, to walk. But the Lord doesn't address that. He simply says, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, well, who is this? Who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Good question. But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and he said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise up and walk? So that's what he puts before him. What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or rise up and walk? To be as an old brainer, it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because how do you know? <laughs> Is it, they, do they look into this man's heart? Are they going to know that his sins have been taken away by God? No. It's easier to say that. It would be harder to say, pick up your bed and walk. So, so he says, but, verse 24, that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Now remember, this is before the cross. And they're acknowledging that God is the only one who can forgive sins, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He says to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, take up your bed and go home. Immediately, he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. So here is that which is harder. And he says, but the point I'm trying to make is so that you might know that the Son of God has power to forgive sins. Okay, rise up, take up your bed, and go. And he does. So the point that he just made is that he's God. And they were amazed at verse 26, and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, we have seen strange things today. It was strange 
to me that, um, um, good word here, the perseverance of these guys. They were determined. They were gonna do whatever it takes to get their buddy to Jesus. And if it meant ripping off the roof of the house to get, get them down, so be it. That's what they would do. And that, that had, to, had to be quite a sight because obviously the Lord was teaching. And as he's teaching, hmm, this, this guy just comes floating down and becomes a center of attention. So, Jesus forgiving sins before he died on the cross. I want to tie two examples, one we just were uh, looking at on Sunday, but I want to look at another one. They're both in the New Test- Old Testament that deal with God forgiving sins when the law clearly called for a death penalty and said. Let's go to, um, the, well, the second one has the death penalty. Let's go to, first of all, to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is actually um, repeated, and what is seen anyway, in the book of Revelation chapter 4 and 5, because John is taken and he sees the Lord high and lifted up, and he sees the, what's, it's called the Zoa, or the four creatures, but they're really four um, very special um, angels um, and we will read about him here. Um, Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high, lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Now here they're called seraphim in, in um, Revelation, Zoah, or living creatures is what they're called. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. What a sight that must be. And one cried to the other and said, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, the whole earth is full of your glory. Now just keep your finger there. And again, as we teach through the Bible, we want to see the old connecting with the new. So turn to Revelation. Keep your finger here because we're coming right back. Revelation chapter 5, 4 and 5. Pick it up in verse, I'll pick it up in verse two. I believe verse four is a picture of, of the rapture. Um, it says, after these things, uh, the, the Greek word there is menetata, and it's asking the question, after what things? You notice that now we're all in black letters, but chapters two and three are in red letters. I believe it's the, um, uh, the church is taken up here. He hears a trumpet. That's what we read in 1 Corinthians 15. Come up here, and I will show you things that must take place after this. After what? After the church age. And he who sat there, and, and immediately was in the spirit, and behold, the throne set in heaven, one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and sardis stone in appearance, And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their head. And from the throne proceeded lightning, thunder, voices. There were seven lamps of the fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne was a sea of glass like crystal. 
And in the midst of the throne, interesting, in the midst of the throne and around the throne, we're talking, in my opinion, multidimensionalism here, four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. More details given to us here. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature had the face of a man. The fourth living creature was a face like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings. So this is what Isaiah is seeing, John is writing about here, connecting the book of Isaiah with the book of Revelation. Um, Six wings, the detail that is not given to us in Revelation, uh, um, Isaiah tells us that with two, uh, they covered their face, with two, their body, and with two, they flew. But they did not rest day or night. This is the same. Day and night they said, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever, the 24 elders fell down before him, who sat on the throne and worshiped him, who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Go back to Isaiah. We have detail. Some of it's given to us in Revelation. The detail that Isaiah gives us here is the uh, covering, verse two, of this, here they're called seraphim. But it's exactly the same thing. He's the same He always has been, he always is, and he always will be. And one cried to the other, just what we read in Revelation, holy, holy, holy. And John talks about lightnings and thunders and voices. Isaiah doesn't tell us about the lightning and the thunder, but he talks about the doorpost being shaken in verse four, and the voice who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And then I said, woe is me, I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for I have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a live coal which had is taken from with the tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth with it and he said, behold, this has touched your lips your iniquity, your sin, is taken away and your sin is purged. So here in the Old Testament, when the scribes and the Pharisees said only God can forgive sins, here's an example of it. Let's go to the example in Second Samuel with David. Now because of David's sin, we're in Second Samuel chapter 12, Second Samuel chapter 12, and I'm actually going to read the first 14 verses. This is the time when David should have been out warring. He stayed at home, and it was that night he was out on the balcony. He saw this beautiful woman called Bathsheba. She was bathing, and David called for her. David committed adultery with her. She was a married woman who was married to one of David's mighty men called Uriah. 
And um, when David couldn't cover his tracks, he has Uriah murdered. So both of these offenses in the law are punishable according to the law by the death sentence. And that would have been by stoning. But now let's read chapter 12. We'll read the first 14 verses. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, David, there were two men in one city, one rich and one poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds. But the poor guy, he didn't have anything except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, nourished, and grew up together with him and with his children. It ate at his his food at his own table from his own cup. He laid him in his bosom, and it was like a like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man and refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare for one of the wayfaring men who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's listening to this story because he's the judge, he's the king. And David gets emotionally riled up because of the wrongness of the act. He had all these sheep, and this guy had one, and he takes the one. And David's anger was greatly aroused against the man and said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, this man who has done this shall surely die. That wasn't, here again is the breaking of the law. What the law calls for in this instance, if you steal somebody's uh, lamb, then you had to pay him twice as much. And that's not what David, David is going beyond the law, and that should have been the punishment, but instead he says, no, this guy's gonna die for what he did. And he shall restore him fourfold for the lamb because he did, he did this thing. Now, well, that's what Exodus 22.1 says. So it's not just double, but fourfold. Then Nathan said to David, David, You're the guy. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives, into your keeping, gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you even much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? And now he lays it all out. You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. And you have killed him with the sword by the people of Ammon. Now, David, therefore, the sword will not depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will rise up adversaries against you for your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbors. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. This actually was fulfilled with Absalom. But you did it secretly, but I'm going to do this thing before all of Israel. Now we have David's response. What Nathan's job was, was to give the punishment. What does the law say? The prophet's responsibility is say, here's the sentence, David, you know what the law requires. But that's not what happens. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. 
And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. He should have. So here's two examples that I want to point out. But even though the Lord forgave David his sins, that doesn't mean there's not going to be consequences for the sin that David committed. Good place for an amen. What are the consequences? We read it in the next verse. Moreover, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Um, I've done funerals for um, babies that have lived a week, sometimes a month, maybe some a little bit longer. And I often will use this because David is, is beyond grief. He goes into fasting and mourning because the child is sick. After seven days, the child that um, uh, David had with Bathsheba died. And uh, he washes himself up. He gets cleaned up. And um, he goes about his business. And um, the guy's in the court come up and said, David, what in the world is going on? He says, you were mourning and fasting and praying and, and now the child dies and you're washing yourself and you're getting back to your daily routine. Um, and David said to them in verse 23, this is a comforting verse about what happens to a child when they die. Verse 23 says, but now he is dead Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Okay, there's a lot of theology in this one little statement. The certainty, number one, that I believe all babies are in heaven until they reach whatever that age of accountability is. So I can take comfort in that. But the other thing that it talks about here is that child is not gonna come back here. So David says, I'm going to go to him, but he can't come back to me. Now, the theology here is people who claim they have talked with loved ones that have died and seen them, and um, um, in Deuteronomy 18, it clearly says that thou shall not try in any way, shape, or form. It's a sin, it's an abomination to try to communicate with the dead. So there's a lot of theology here, but my point in bringing it to you, let's go back to Luke. And in Luke chapter five, we find that the Lord says to this man, your sins are forgiven you. And it really upsets the scribes and the Pharisees. The point being made here, number one, that Jesus is God because it's true, only God can forgive sins. Two Old Testament examples, Isaiah. The other one, David, and um, and, uh, we'll read another one before we're through this evening. All right, so let's pick it up. Verse 27 and 28 is a calling of Matthew. We'll read down to verse 32. Now, after these things, well, what things? Well, after these guys let down their friend to get healed, after these things he went out, And he saw a tax collector named Levi 
Let me just stop and say, nobody, nobody was hated more in Israel than the tax collectors. They made their livelihood not only receiving taxes for the Romans, but whatever more they could get out, that was how they got paid. So they were always trying to get as much as they could. And sitting at a tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he left all, rose up, and followed him. And then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And it was a great number of tax collectors. So this buddy, the only friends he had, because <laughs> they're all in the same racket, was other tax collectors and others who sat down with him. But their scribes and the Pharisees again murmured against his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Lord came to call everyone. He's not willing, doesn't the scripture tell us? He's not willing that any should perish, even the scribes and the Pharisees. Another good place for the amen. So it's, the idea here is not that he's not reaching out to them. It's the fact is that their self-righteousness is keeping them from coming to him. So the dinner was given by Levi as a way of trying to win people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Levi had not been trained in a theological seminary. He was a tax gatherer. He was a rascal. When it came to the Lord Jesus, he did what he could. He was a rich publican. So he gave a dinner, invited all his rascal friends to it so that they could meet Jesus Christ. The scribes and the Pharisees who were there had a difficult time keeping their mouth shut and they finally came and said to him, what are you doing hanging out with these? Everybody hates the tax collectors. What are you doing hanging with them? And the scribes and the Pharisees criticized with, with a question. And the Lord had a good answer for them. And he responds to them. The scribes and the Pharisees asked the disciples why they ate with publicans and sinners. And the Lord's answer was simple and wonderful. He was the great physician. And he did not go around healing people that were well. He came to minister to those who were sick with sin. The gospel is really for those who recognize their need. And I can't emphasize that enough. We talked about it on Sunday in the Beatitudes. Before the Lord can fill you up, what does he have to do? He's got to empty you out and get rid of all what you consider is your own righteousness. That's all got to go. You got to see your need. There are some people who think they are too good to be saved. They are not aware of their need. If you recognize that you have a need, then the gospel is for you. Christ can and will save you. If you're self-sufficient, you recognize no personal need, and go on your own self-chosen pathway, it's gonna lead you to destruction. I'm sorry, the great physician can do nothing for those who think they are not sick. That's why the Lord says that um, um, that the, the uh, harlots and, and um, uh, the unrighteous are going to enter the kingdom of heaven before the scribes and the Pharisees. And that blew 
the disciples' minds. Who could be better, religiously speaking, than the scribes and the Pharisees? The one thing that keeps a person from repenting is that they don't see the need to repent. I'm a good person. I'm not as bad as Hitler. And, um, and as long as we're on that plane of comparing ourselves to each other, well, you might stack up pretty good against a Stalin or a Hitler or a Mussolini or whoever. But when you stand and you compare yourself like we just read in Isaiah and um, you see the Lord high and lifted up, you become painfully aware when, you're, when the comparison is made between holiness and what the scriptures we talked about on Sunday, there's none righteous, no, not one. We're in Romans 7, Paul's saying, I want to do it. <laughs> I want to do the right thing, I don't. Things I, want, I should do, I don't do, and the things I, don't, I shouldn't do, those are the things I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Before that, what was his attitude? Ah, huh, you Christians, starting a new religion, huh? And you are going to break all the law and the covenants and the testaments of Judaism? Kill them. And he cast his vote to have Stephen stoned. And he was a part of that self-righteous group. If that's your attitude and you don't see the need, it's very, very difficult for a person to say, Lord, help me. I'm, 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 everything that your word tells about me is true. So we have here, verse 32, I've not come to call the, right, the righteous, or I should put in there those who think they are righteous because of religion but no, those who are not. Okay, 33 through 35. The question came up, um, why do the disciples of John, we'll be talking about John on Sunday, fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but your disciples don't do that, they eat and drink. So what's up? And the Lord said to them, can you make the friend of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them. So usually a wedding party, the bride and the bridegroom when they're together, it's festive, it's joyful, not a time for mourning. But then he says in verse 35, but the day is going to come when the bridegroom is going to be taken away, then in those days they will fast, but not while the Lord is there. And while he's there, it's not a time of fasting and praying. There is an exception. And to find that, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 17 and um, giving an exception to this rule. Let me just give you the background. The first 13 verses of Matthew 17 deal with the Lord taking Peter, James, and John up on a high mountain. When you go to Israel, they say, it's this, this is the Mount of Transfiguration right here. They have no idea where it is. <laughs> it doesn't tell us here where it is. It says a high mountain. My guess is our bell, but who knows? You can have a guess, and your guess could be just as good. All we know is the Lord took him to a high mountain, and uh, there he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. 
Moses and Elijah appear. The Lord speaks, the Father speaks from heaven because Peter doesn't know what to do except to say, wow, Moses and Elijah, we should build three tabernacles. One for you, Lord, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And as he's rambling on, the Father speaks from heaven and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. (laughs) They were all hung up with Moses and Elijah showing up on the scene. I call this a mountaintop experience, but they gotta come down. And uh, when they get down in verse 14, when they had come to the multitudes, a man came with him, kneeling down to him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they, they couldn't cure him. Now the disciples were having no problems casting out demons, except for this one. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? Um, There's frustration here on the Lord's part. He's disappointed in their lack of faith in not being able to deal with this issue while he was away. So he says, how long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and he came out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. Now the disciples are stumped by all of this. The disciples came to Jesus privately and says, why couldn't we cast him out? And Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to the mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. But then he has this little clause at the end. However, this kind. Well, there's a whole lot of theology right there because that just tells us that there's different kinds. But this kind, meaning what? There's other kinds of different rank, power, and authority. This kind, however, does not come out except by prayer, and here we have fasting. So when the Lord says, no, they're not gonna fast while I'm here, but when I'm gone, uh, this was an exception to that. Um, I'm afraid we're woefully unaware of the spiritual realm, especially in America. And um, uh, as we see different warfares taking place, uh, if you've walked with the Lord with any length of time at all, um, you've um, been exposed to spiritual warfare, comes in different ways, and um, what this gets into now is we do not, as it says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, our wrestling inside of us. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities in high places. That should be a reality for every born-again Christian, that there's a spiritual dimension that we wrestle against. And there's different degrees, according to this, this right here, Lord, why couldn't we do this? Well, you were lacking in faith, but this one's a little bit different. He's more of a heavyweight, and in this one you have to engage in prayer and in fasting. Fasting is simply a denying of the flesh, 
uh, so that the spirit might be weaker. And there's a whole Bible study in here I just wanted to point out when the Lord said he wasn't going to have the disciples fast now. Let's go back to Luke. That was, um, let's pick it up in verse 36 and finish chapter 5. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear. And also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. No one puts new wine into old wine skins or else the new wine will burst the wine skin and be be spilled and a wine skin will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wine skins then both are preserved. And no one having drunk old wine immediately desires new for he says, the old is better. What's the Lord saying here? He is bringing, like when he talked about on uh, Sunday, he so blew the minds. I use the term, it was a bomb. The Beatitudes was a bomb on the disciples because Israel was waiting for their Messiah to deliver them from the Romans, they expected him to be a warrior and not some mild-mannered man who says, blessed are those who mourn or blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That wasn't what they were expecting the language to be. They were expecting a battle plan. How are you gonna bring in the kingdom of heaven when you're riding some little donkey down and you're lowly and humbling and you're speaking all these beautiful beatitudes of graciousness and peace and love. Doesn't sound like you'll be thrown over Rome anytime soon. And they were shocked. So here, as we talk about the um, parable, the cloth and the wineskins, the natural man likes his old ways. He likes the old wine. That is his old religion. The important thing to recognize that our Lord brought something new to mankind, the gospel. He did not come into the world to do any patching up of the old garment. He wasn't gonna try to fix things up in the law. The law could not be broken. He did not come to patch up the law. He came to pay the penalty of sin by dying on the cross. But he did more than that. He rose from the dead so that he could place upon us the robe of righteousness. He gives us the new wine of the gospel. This parable here is saying he's doing away with the old. I'm not gonna try to put these two together. Um, Paul clearly says, if if you're gonna be saved by works, then it's works. But if you're gonna be saved by grace, then it's grace. But you can't have it both. Please say amen somewhere. And, but yet most, much of the church today is so confused because they're trying to make works one of the uh, sacraments for salvation, amongst many other things. But there's only one. And it's not patching up the old. Out with the old. Just the new. Well, what's the new? It's the new covenant of the gospel, a gospel of grace that um, 
can only be achieved and received when you humbly admit, Lord, I'm a sinner. I don't have anything good to offer you except that you died for me, and I'll take that. And so this parable here um, is, a, is a great parable. Brings us to chapter six. Now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the grain fields and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, what are you doing? For it's not lawful for you to do uh, this on the Sabbath. I'm gonna stop right there and have you turn to Deuteronomy 23, which is part of the law. Deuteronomy 23, and I'll read verse 24 and 25. What the Pharisees were saying was not true. Uh, They did not have sickles in their hands, and they were not harvesting, and they were not working. They were walking through the grain fields sort of like this and plucking it off as they were walking, doing one of these kind of things to get the shucks off, and then just popping it in their mouth and chewing on it. The law actually addresses this. The Pharisees said, they're breaking the Sabbath law because they're working. No, they weren't. Deuteronomy 23, verse 24 and 25 says, when you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container. No harvesting. But as you're passing through, you can eat. And when you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle. So now you're harvesting. In other words, it amazes me, the detail, that the Bible leaves no stone unturned. And here, even walking through a grain field and being being falsely accused by the religious leaders, saying, hey, they're breaking the law, and the answer is no, they weren't. The law says they can do this, Deuteronomy 23. But you shall not use a sickle, because as soon as you put in a sickle, what are you doing? You're harvesting, you're working. But that's not what they were doing. All right, now that is put to rest, let's keep going. Um, Jesus answered and said to them, Haven't you guys ever read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God and ate the showbread and also gave some of those who were with him, which is not lawful because his bread was only for the priest to eat. And he said to them, the son of man is also Lord of the Sabbath. I want to take you back to this. This would be 1 Samuel Chapter 21. Give you a moment to get there. First Samuel 21. David is on the run from Saul. Saul wants to kill him. And we'll pick it up, read just the first six verses, where David runs from Saul to a priestly city called Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid when he met David, and he said to him, 
why are you alone and no one is with you? See, David, when David was out, he was the mighty warrior. And um, what are you doing here by yourself? And no one is with you. Well, they were, they were there. They, they were just out of sight at this point. So David said to Ahimelech, the priest, the king, he's lying to him here, the king has ordered me on some business and said to me, do not let anyone know anything about the business of which I send you or what I have commanded you and I have directed my young men to such and such a place. So I got them outside hiding out. Verse three, now therefore, what have you in your hand? Uh, give me five loaves of bread in my hand and whatever else can be found. And David's hungry, he's on the run. And the priest answered David and said, well, there's no common bread here. Uh, contrasting that with the holy bread that only the priest could eat but there is holy bread if the young men have at least kept themselves from women then David answered the priest and said to them truly women have not have been kept from us for three days since I came out and the vessels of the young men are holy and the bread is in effect common even though it was sanctified in a vessel this day so the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread but the showbread, which had been taken from before the Lord in order to be put hot bread in its place on the day that it was taken away. Now, in these verses here, as they're accusing the, uh, these guys for eating and working, on a Sabbath, the Lord takes him all the way back to the story with David. He says, it was not lawful for Ahimelech to do what he just did, but he did it anyway. Why? Because the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And human need and requirement is higher than the law itself. When we visit the Temple Mount Institute, in Jerusalem. They actually have, uh, they, they tell a story how they store the uh, loaves of bread. There's about, oh, I say you could fit mm, maybe on one rack, they'd have six racks all the way across, and maybe six or seven across. So just imagine all that. Well, the miracle, it's sort of like the, the oil um, on Hanukkah. They only had enough for one day, but it lasted for eight. When they cooked, what, what they explained to you, this bread, they would change it after the eighth day, and they would have eaten it probably by then, but it was just as warm, and it was just as fresh eight days later when the day that they made it. And... Um, that's one of the explanations that they give you as they go through and they show you the garments of the priesthood. Um, just on a really side note, uh, the latest things I've heard that you know they could literally um, put the temple back completely together. Um, a temple on the Temple Mount in a matter of weeks, if not just a couple months, because it's all prefabbed and ready to go. And what the Temple Mount Institute is all about 
is making all the garments, all the utensils, um, the trumpets, the golden, they have a candelabra um, um, plated with gold, worth millions. That's sort of in a showcase overlooking uh, the Temple Mount facing um, the Wailing Wall. So there's a lot of excitement and um, people are actually calling for that event to take place. So that could happen very quickly. All right, back to, again, wanting to tie the Old Testament in with the New. As they're walking through the grain fields, the Lord just said, haven't you ever guys read the Old Testament story about David running from Saul at Nob and Ahimelech? And he was given the bread, which is not lawful. And he said, the son of man is also Lord of the Sabbath. So the Lord is, again, trumping him, these guys here. 6 through 11. Jesus now heals on the Sabbath. Now it happened on another Sabbath that he entered the synagogue and taught. And a man was there whose right hand was, was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees watched him closely whether he would heal on the Sabbath that they might find an accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise, stand here. And he rose and stood. And then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on a Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? And looking around at them, he said to them, to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Wouldn't you like to see that happen right before your eyes? (laughs) All shriveled up and crumpled up, and it just comes out, and he's healed. And uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, it says they were praising the Lord and rejoicing greatly that this poor man had a withered hand. Is that what it says? No, they were filled with rage and disgusted with with one another, discussed what they might do to Jesus. This was the setup. This whole thing that's going on here, this man with the withered hand was a plant, he was a plant. Uh, you can be sure. In doing this, they were really um, giving our Lord a wonderful compliment. They believed that he could heal him. They were waiting for the Lord to heal this guy. And they believed he would heal him. Uh, They knew he was both powerful and compassionate. And they were exactly correct in their estimation of him. Our, Our Lord healed this guy And then his enemies used the occasion to accuse him of breaking the Sabbath day. Matthew tells us that they plotted his death from that moment on. Okay, that was it. Now you've broken the Sabbath and we caught you doing it. And what Matthew tells us here, it was at this point that they had a little huddle and he said he's got to go. We gaffed to kill 
Jesus. And um, so in these verses here in, um, in Luke's account, 6 through 11, um, this is what Matthew is important to tie the two together. This is where they decide that he's got to go. Now, uh, verses 12 through 19, the Lord is going to be um, making a selection of his apostles. We read, it came to pass in those days that he went out into the mountain to pray and he continued all night in prayer to God. Uh, I just have personal experience with this. Uh, I find sometimes unless you get away away, there's always something to do. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? (laughs) There's always something to do. On your day off, what do you do? You get caught up in stuff that you should <laughs> that needs to be caught up on, and um, with the multitudes and the crowds, and when Jesus wanted to spend one-on-one time with the Father, he says he just got away to a mountain, and he continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to him. And from there he chose 12, whom also he named apostles. So the first one that comes up is Simon, who he also called Peter, Andrew his brother, James and John. Now the first four here are all brothers. Peter and Andrew, and then James and John. They're all fishermen. They all knew each other. Um, I think they were all from Capernaum. Then Philip and Bartholomew. Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place. Now, again, if you don't read through the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse, you would never pick up that we're going into the Beatitudes right now, but it's in two different locations. I mean, I read the Beatitudes for years saying, well, it was one Beatitude, it all happened at the same place. And I'd actually teach it for many years, um, going on the Mount of Beatitudes and said, here's where it happened. Well, no, it happened in many places. And there's a combination of additions, subtractions that we talked about in depth on Sunday. Um, In verse 17, here it clearly tells us they came to a level place with a crowd. And Matthew's account is called the Sermon on the Mount because it was on the Mount. And if you remember the first verse of Matthew 5, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Everybody remember that from Sunday? But what does it say when he starts the Beatitudes here in verse 20? Blessed are the poor. And he goes on and talks about money. So we actually have two different places. Some of the Beatitudes are similar, but some of them are different. The very first one is talking about your um, poor in spirit. Or again, in the way we termed it on Sunday, um, the awareness that Peter had when the Lord said, 
let's go fishing. And Peter said, we fished all night. They're, they're not biting, Lord. But if you say so, we'll go. And they threw out their nets. Biggest catch they ever had. They had to call for help. Filled up both boats. They began to sink. And as soon as they got to shore, the Lord says, follow me. So the biggest day, the biggest catch in Peter's life, he now calls them, but before he does that, he falls flat in his face and he says, Lord, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Because he knew whose presence he was in. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. So the Lord, the emptying process, essential, before the Lord can build a new foundation. The emptying out before he can build it back up. So I want to point out, I point out it, I pointed this out on Sunday that these are two different messages, some of it's similar, but it's in two different places. Um, and a great multitude of people came from Judah and Jerusalem, from the seacoast, uh, from Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits. I'm amazed how much the Gospels talk about demons and unclean spirits. And they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him, and he healed them all. Now, when we get to verse 20, we have, again, the Beatitudes. But again, I'll point out here, it says, blessed are you poor. It does not say, blessed are the poor in spirit. He's literally talking about being financially poor. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and cast you out uh, your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Now, verses 20 through 22 are very similar to Matthew 5 and part of the Beatitudes. Beginning with verse, I should say all the way through 23, um, is similar. Beginning with verse 24, we go from blessings, uh, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you, but now in verse 24, we have our first woe to you. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men will speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Now, on Sunday, the point we made here was talking about Jeremiah. He had one message. You guys have gone too far. God's gonna spank you. It's going to take you into Babylon. You're going to be there for 70 years. And that was his only message. People hated it. Nobody wanted to hear it. But there were false prophets who were saying, are you thinking that our God is going to allow the temple to be destroyed? Or that his people are going to be taken into captivity? That's what verse 26 is saying. For so their father's did to the false prophets. Well, they loved the false teachers because they made them feel good. Never brought any conviction of things that they were doing wrong. They took Jeremiah, threw him in a pit, 
And he was despised, and that's where he comes, we come up with the term, he was the weeping prophet. It goes on in 27 through 38. Again, I'm going to contrast this with the law. In the law, it says, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Somebody takes out your eye, you, can, you have every right to take out their eye. And if somebody knocks out a tooth, you got every right to take out their tooth. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Now, in verse 27, he changes all that around. He says, but I say to you here, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, all right, there you are getting poked in the eye, getting socked in the mouth and their tooth is knocked out. What does the law say? You've got every right to slap him right back. Offer the other cheek also. Now, we were teaching on this um, a couple years ago down, down in uh, Haiti at one of the pastor's conferences. And, and we read this, read this verse here, and I'm saying, you know, I'd like to use some sort of an example of what it means to turn the other cheek when he gets slapped. And so, of course, teaching there, you have to go from English to Creole. Bastia's got a lot of gifts, but he can pick up um, um, and almost become me in his talking. He's, got it, he's just got it down. So I'm figuring at this point I need an illustration. So I said, it says here, if somebody strikes you on the cheek, well, this just was, wasn't just a little slap. I mean, I wanted it to have an effect. So I went, wham! <laughs> and he just looked at me. And I said, and he's looking at me. Everybody cracked up. They thought it was, nobody knew that I was going to do this, first of all. And everybody's looking, what's Bostia what's going to do? What's Bostia going to And Bostia just looked at me and gave me one of those great big, <laughs> one of those great big grins because he knows he couldn't do anything but. <laughs> I thought it was funny. I don't know if anybody else said so. I don't think he did. Him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer him the other also. So I waited for him to do that. I said, I went just like this. And finally, Bostia goes like this. <laughs> they got the point. Verse 30, give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask for them back. Wow. And just as you want men to do to you, do to them likewise. These are such wise words. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do that much. And if you do good to those who do not do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. We are to be different. We are to be that peculiar people that um, say you're different. You know, you don't, you don't freak out when you should be freaking out. And you don't uh, react the way a person should react if, if they've been wronged or slandered or whatever. My Bible says, vengeance is Lord, he will repay. Good place for an amen. It's not like anybody's getting away with anything. 
It's just that the Lord says he'll take care of it so that we don't have to. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the highest. For he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your father also is merciful. One of my favorite Chuck-isms that I'll throw out here is sometimes you just don't know what to do because you just don't have all the facts. We're going to read a little bit about judging. Uh, Don't judge and and you won't be judged. And sometimes you just don't have enough information about a situation to make a decision. So this is a Chuckism. Err on the side of grace. Can I say that one again? If you don't know for sure, and you gotta make a decision, and it might be an error, well then err on the side of grace instead of erring on the side of vengeance. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Um, I have this one underlined, and I'll comment on that in just a second here, verse 37. Um, the scripture says many people like to quote this when it comes to doctrinal things well you can't judge me the Bible says uh, don't judge or you'll be judged well this is talking about the motive of the heart why a person does something and I should never judge why you do what you do because I can't see inside of your heart. Not a good place for an amen. But that's different when it comes to doctrine. When it comes to doctrine, the rest of the New Testament, after we get through the book of Acts, is Paul correcting false doctrine. The Bible says the spiritual man judges all things. For instance, any man that, that doesn't say that Jesus came in the flesh as God, He's a false teacher. And you're to call out false teachers and point them out. Say this doctrine is wrong, this doctrine is wrong, this doctrine is wrong, doctrinally speaking. A good part of our Bible study tonight was about the Sabbath. And one of the things that's rampant, one of the new things that's out there right now are what we call Sabbath keepers. And somehow, some way, they got persuaded that they are to keep the Sabbath day. You don't do any work on it. This is Saturday. You don't call Jesus, Jesus. You call him Yeshua. And um, they are keeping keeping the law. And there's different variations of people who hold to this doctrine. But I need to be able to tell you Look out for them because they will lay some trip on you that you have to keep the, the, the Sabbath. But also, if they'd read carefully, my Bible says if you try to keep one, that means you have to keep all of them. Ooh, that one's kind of hard. But you're never gonna 
hear them tell you that one. So if you ever run across a person who's trying to persuade you to um, be a part of the sabbatical movement, I have a good friend who's caught up into it, a very good friend. And I'm, I can't believe that he's involved with it. I think he's way, way too smart to be involved and knows too much of the scripture to ever be deceived in that and, and, and trying to keep the law because it clearly says if you're gonna to try to keep one, then you gotta you got do them all. So here, when it says thou shalt not judge, no, you better judge. We call it discernment, apologetics. And it is um, the one rule of thumb is the scriptures are the, the final authority. And so when it comes to... Um, Judge not, and you will not be judged. This, this deals with the matter of the heart because I can't look into your heart of why you do what you do. What's your motive? Why did you do that? Well, it's not my judge, job to judge that because only the Lord can look at your heart. All right, let's um, finish up two more verses. And um, I do not want to rush through the rest of this, so we're at our time. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measured, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use it, it will be measured back to you. Now, I believe this is a very true spiritual principle. Principle. I believe in uh, at the judgment uh, seat of Christ when we it says every man's work is going to be judged, and the only one that can do that is the Lord Himself. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. And I'll close with these thoughts: it has nothing to do with your salvation, nothing. Even as a born again Christian, you did nothing but live for yourself your entire life. No works at all for heaven. The Bible says everything will be, all those other things that you did will be burned up like wood, but you'll still be saved. So what that tells me, but there's others that have labored and hopefully as time goes on, you start scratching your head and you go, you know, I I think it's more important to be laboring for the kingdom because that stuff's gonna endure forever but the stuff that I'm just laboring for now, if that's what he had in stubble, then that's, that's all gonna be left behind. And this little bit of time that we have from birth, dash, death, that could be very, very short. Um, I decided to, I, got to, I get these advertisements to keep joining my alumni when I graduated from high school. And they said, you can get a lifetime membership for 25 bucks. So you know what I did yesterday? I signed up. For 25 bucks, I went in, but then you, gotta, then you gotta write out all this stuff about yourself, what you're doing. And I thought, actually, I was getting into it because there was 900 people in my graduating class in, in 70, but they have everybody who was ever at Oshkosh West that could be on this website. So one of the things is, what do you do? What do you like to do? So did I lay it out? I had a chance to witness to all my old friends 
And I, I basically said this. You know, I got saved listening to Billy Graham. Pause, commas. I know that's really hard for some of you to believe because some of you who knew me well in high school think that that is not possible. <laughs> because I was a big heathen in high school. But I've been doing this for 40 years now. But the thing that really hit me was next year is 2020. That's 50 years ago. And I'm looking at high school pictures and I'm saying, 50 years has gone by? Well, where did they go? I don't know, but they're gone. <laughs> and and there's no getting them back. Sort of brings into focus and clarity what's important and what's not. Only one life, soon be passed. Only what's done for Jesus is gonna last. I can't think of a better way to end a study, can you? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that always brings things into right perspective. It once again reminds us that this world is not our home, that the world's ways and your ways are so contrary. Lord, help us be like you. Mold us and shape us. Forgive us, Lord, when we're stubborn and we wrestle with you when you're speaking to us. But we pray that we would be those people that would err on the side of grace and not judge when we don't know the motive of a person's heart. But Lord, at the same time, help us be contenders and defenders for the true gospel and expose and even name names for those that are bringing something contrary to the word of God. And give us a boldness to do it, Lord, because we need it in these last days. Bless your people as we go out tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Oshkosh West, that could be on this website. So one of the things is, what do you do? What do you like to do? So did I lay it out? I had a chance to witness to all my old friends, and I, I basically said this, You know, I got saved listening to Billy Graham, pause, commas. I know that's really hard for some of you to believe because some of you who knew me well in high school think that that is not possible (laughs) because I was a big heathen in high school. But I've been doing this for 40 years now. But the thing that really hit me was next year is 2020. That's 50 years ago. And I'm looking at high school pictures and I'm saying, 50 years has gone by? Well, where did they go? I don't know, but they're gone. (laughs) And and there's no getting them back. Sort of brings into focus and clarity what's important and what's not. Only one life, soon be passed. Only what's done for Jesus is gonna last. I can't think of a better way to end a study, can you? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that always brings things into right perspective. It once again reminds us that this world is not our home, that the world's ways and your ways are so contrary. Lord, help us be like you. Mold us and shape us. Forgive us, Lord, when we're stubborn and we wrestle with you when you're speaking to us. But we pray that we would be those people that would err on the side of grace and not judge when we don't know the motive of a person's heart. 
But Lord, at the same time, help us be contenders and defenders for the true gospel and expose and even name names for those that are bringing something contrary to the word of God. And give us a boldness to do it, Lord, because we need it in these last days. Bless your people as we go out tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.